Welcome to another episode of The Art Salon. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share it with your friends on social media. To keep up with our latest guests and announcements, be sure to follow us at The Art Salon on Instagram. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit the support section on the Anchor website where you can contribute to the podcast once or set up recurring donations. Today's guest is Joseph Horowitz. Joseph is without a doubt one of the most influential thinkers in classical music in the world. His work should be a staple of any modern musician's library. I wish to thank him for his time and generosity. It was a pleasure getting to know him during the couple of hours we spent chatting. He had wanted me to embed a documentary, the link of which will be in the description to the podcast. However, I was unable to do so because of licensing issues. I will read some excerpts from his incredibly extensive and eclectic biography for those of you who might not be familiar with his phenomenal work. Joseph Horowitz is an author, concert producer, and teacher. He is one of the most prominent and widely published writers on topics in American music. As an orchestral administrator and advisor, he has been a pioneering force in the development of thematic programming and new concert formats. Horowitz's forthcoming book, Dvorak's Prophecy and the Vexed Fate of Black Classical Music, published by W.W. Norton, proposes a new paradigm for the history of American classical music. It will be published in November 2021 in tandem with a series of documentary films he has produced for Naxos. Horowitz's 10 previous books mainly deal with the history of classical music in the United States. Horowitz was a New York Times music critic from 1976 to 1980 before becoming executive director of the Brooklyn Philharmonic Orchestra. During his 1990s tenure, the VPO was reconceived as a humanities institution, producing thematic cross-disciplinary festivals in collaboration with schools and museums. In 2003, Horowitz co-founded Postclassical Ensemble, an experimental chamber orchestra based in Washington, D.C. He serves as executive producer. Horowitz is included in Marquis' Who's Who in America. His website is www.josephhorowitz.com. His blog is www.artsjournal.com-uq. I have omitted his vast and impressive biography for the sake of time, but I hope you will all read it if you are unfamiliar with Joseph. He is truly an original and important voice in the arts for America. In our conversation, we discuss his upcoming book, Dvorak's Prophecy and the Vex Fate of Black Classical Music, as well as the NPR documentary he produced and which is linked in the description of this podcast. I hope you will all listen to it and enjoy his incredible scholarly work. In dealing with this subject, we land in many places, including cultural appropriation, academic work, the orchestral world's inability to innovate, migration patterns and music, and many more subjects. I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Joseph Horowitz and are encouraged to go and find his brilliant work. It will help most redefine their understanding of classical scholarship and passion. With that, I leave you with Joseph Horowitz. What I'm trying to do. Yeah, go ahead. So I started this thing. I was going to start it anyway, but then the pandemic hit and I thought, why not now? Uh, and what I do, and I, I came to realize I could invite you through through Dave Taylor, because I've read a lot of your work throughout the years, but I haven't... Uh, I, I didn't know anyone that knew you. <laughs> so Dave mm-hmm. encouraged me to, to reach out to you. But what I'm trying to do with this podcast is particularly with instrumentalists, I'm, I'm seeing a lot of music podcasts that never, never want to have a 
broad conversation. Everything gets very specialized. Yeah. And uh, it becomes echo chambers of instrumentalists. And nobody hears the broader conversation of the arts. So I, I thought in that way, people like you are like the ideal guest for a thing like this. Um, so, you know, I, I listened to what you wanted to talk about most today, which is the Dvorak project that you, you've been, you've been doing um, and put out. I'd just like to, I thought since it's audio, the NPR show, by the way, they just agreed to do a second one. Oh, on fantastic. Hopefully in politics. But I, since it's audio, I was hoping you could incorporate clips. I might be able to in post. I, I don't have I mean the capacity. Post, yeah, but uh, insofar as we can, we should reference it, and uh, it make it easy for you to to do that. Absolutely, and you know the NPR one was very beautifully done that way, and so I guess I just had like. First of all, why don't we start for people that haven't seen it yet, and I'll link the the whole in, the whole NPR interview with you where the breakdown oh. is. Uh, tell me what you were trying to do with that project, and and like what the goal was on the outset when you set out to, you know. So I'm somebody who does two things: I write books and I produce concerts, and I've done both of those things for a very long time. In the 1970s, in the late 1970s, I can barely remember it. I was a music critic for the New York Times, and I hated it. I hated it for lots of reasons, one of which is I didn't believe in the concerts I was attending. They seemed to me redundant and superfluous. And I felt betrayed as somebody who had grown up loving classical music. I wanted to know how it had gone off the rails and become something so marginal, so so insular, so insignificant. And that led to my first big book, Understanding Toscanini, how he became a, an American culture god and helped create a new audience for old music. One of the most reviled books ever written about classical music. People just hated it. Uh, some people loved it. There was no middle ground. And what I said was something bad happened after the First World War to classical music in America. It turned into a kind of high-toned high entertainment, what Dwight McDonald called mid-cult. And it ignored two things, contemporary culture and American culture. It was all about the masterpieces composed by dead Europeans. And this was a very bad direction that led to a cul-de-sac which was what I was experiencing. So I became somebody who produced concerts and wrote books, many of which had to do with the American experience and why classical music had run aground. The more I dealt with this topic, A, I found myself writing about talk things that had not been written about, like the institutional history of classical music in America was a topic that had barely been touched. And B, I became aware of something that took me completely by surprise, which was that the heyday of classical music in America existed and it happened in the 1880s and 1890s. That was the time to be a classical musician in the United States. 
people believed that we would create our own canon. And institutionally, in places like New York and Boston and Chicago, classical music was thriving. The most heroic figures in this period are Anton Zeidel and Antonin Dvorak, who were close friends and who saw one another practically every day between 1892 and 1895 in New York City. Zeidel was conducting at the Met or conducting the New York Philharmonic, and Dvorak was teaching at the National Conservatory and composing things like the New World Symphony, which Zeidel premiered. Dvorak, I think it's rather well known, although not as much as it should be, became an apostle for American music. And he famously and controversially predicted that the future of classical music in America would be based on what he called the Negro melodies. And by Negro melodies, he meant both what we now call spirituals and minstrel songs, like Old Folks at Home by Stephen Foster was a song that he adored because it had gone out and been absorbed by the people as a kind of anonymous folk song, which to him was the highest possible accolade for this song and for this tune. Of course, Dvorak was right and he was wrong. He was right in seeing that this black musical mother load was the future of American music. And he was wrong in thinking that it would turn into symphonies and operas and concertos and string quartets. Instead, it turned into ragtime, which he was probably exposed to, uh, the blues, jazz, and what have you, all of which was great for American culture. But it's an open question whether American composers of classical music squandered this opportunity, or if these Negro melodies were never really intended for them. I take the position that they were intended for them. And I offer as proof the opera Porgy and Bess by George Gershwin, which I think is our highest creative achievement in classical music. And it's exactly what Dvorak predicted, uh, which shows if you have a genius like Gershwin, it can be done and it should have been done. Uh, now we're excavating music by black classical composers who were sort of a, uh, a buried legacy of Dvorak's prophecy. And so far we've come up with a couple of really extraordinary finds. I don't know if this music has come to your attention, but the Negro Folk Symphony by William Dawson, premiered in 1934 by Leopold Stokowski, turns out to be one of the best American symphonies. And the Ordering of Moses by Nathaniel Dett, premiered by the Cincinnati Symphony in the 30s, turns out to be a really important American cantata. And these are pieces that don't require any special pleading. And yet we lost track of them. We lost sight of them completely. So uh, my most uh, recent book, which will come out in October, is called Dvorak's Prophecy and the Vexed Fate of Black Classical Music. And it proposes what I call a new paradigm, a new narrative for classical music in America that begins with the sorrow songs and includes Dvorak and Dawson and Dett that makes Gershwin and Ives our two great creative talents, which I believe they are, and knocks down a rung Aaron Copeland and the Boulanger 
uh, trained composers who for decades we've sort of regarded for reasons that are another topic as our highest and most iconic achievement in classical music. They are not. Uh, ask Arnold Schoenberg. Uh, he said, your two great geniuses are Gershwin and Ives. And I think we can, a lot of people can agree today that that's so, even though they suffered a lot of neglect and a lot of opprobrium. All of which is to introduce um, this radio documentary that I was able to produce for National Public Radio not very long ago. And the film, which I was able to produce not very long ago, thanks to the pandemic. I mean, both of these things happened because I'm running an orchestra. I'm the executive producer and co-founder of Post-Classical Ensemble in Washington, D.C. that cannot, for the moment, give concerts. So we started making films, and one of the films turned into a radio documentary at the invitation of Rupert Altman, who's the producer of the radio news magazine 1A for National Public Radio. The film and the radio documentary so the film is called Dvorak's New World Symphony as a lens on the American experience of race, because it is. And that means that you can talk about the murder of George Floyd and other things that are going on today in the same breath that you can talk about the New World Symphony and Dvorak's decision to regard Black Americans as iconic Americans a decision that is both influential and controversial. And the radio documentary is like a, uh, an audio version of the film addressing the same issues of race and the American experience. Now, I, I had two questions before we delve deeper into uh, the project itself, but you say like 1880, 1890 is the height of what could have become and what was at the time, you know, like truly innovative American classical music, so to speak. And I, I was curious, how much do you think that the collapse of those voices has to do with the gigantic influx of European immigrants starting in 1910 to after World War II? who might have imposed what yeah. they were bringing in from outside on and, and kind of killed the emerging voices, so to speak. So I'm making a little list as I'm listening to you. of What were the factors? And that's certainly one of them. Um, I would begin, however, with a different factor, which is demographic that the arts were popularized after World War I, you had a phenomenon called the new middle classes. These were upwardly mobile Americans who were disposed to acquire a taste for culture. And they were tutored. <laughs> and the people who tutored them included David Sarnoff, who was running NBC and RCA, uh, this is what Virgil Thompson called the music appreciation racket. So, 
in some ways they were well tutored and in some ways they were very poorly tutored. And uh, this is the topic of understanding Toscanini. What I say in that book is these tutorials were often driven by commercial considerations like how can I sell the most uh, recordings? Um, or how can I generate the biggest audience on the radio? So to make a long story short, the story of, of American music that was sold to these new listeners didn't include contemporary music, didn't include popular music, and didn't include American music. Um, the big figure was Beethoven. And the big, uh, the most iconic embodiment of classical music for Americans in this period was an Italian conductor, Arturo Toscanini, not a composer. This is really weird. I mean, before that, you look at any classical music culture, who's the iconic figurehead, the living iconic figurehead? It's always a composer. Always a, could be, you know, Richard Strauss or Claude Debussy or Edward Elgar, uh, Dmitry Shostakovich, Tchaikovsky. You always look to a composer. So something really went crazy. And as I say, that's one factor, it's a demographic factor. Uh, something else that happened was aesthetic. Uh, modernism was an aesthetic that alienated the audience. So you could say good things about modernism. You can say bad things about modernism. But insofar as it privileged creativity and originality, it really didn't give a damn about who was listening. And a lot of contemporary music in this period alienated listeners, new listeners, older listeners, and that created a, a schism between the audience and the contemporary creative act. When you talk about the immigrants, it would be interesting maybe to just take them one at a time. The biggest names are Schoenberg and Stravinsky, and in fact, they were the biggest names uh, in classical music as far as composers went. But um, you've also got enormously impactful performers. They really make a bigger difference. Maybe we should start with the performers. Toscanini is not an immigrant because he never took American citizenship. But for all intents and purposes, he moved to the United States. Kusevitsky did. Um, Heifetz did. Horowitz did. Rudolf Serkin did. These are the people who are really shaping American classical music. They're all foreign born. And their predilections are very different. Kusevitsky is into American music. He founds Tanglewood because he wants to foster the same kind of thing that Dvorak wanted to foster. But Toscanini is not founding Tanglewood. Toscanini is conducting Beethoven and Brahms. Uh, Rudolf Serkin is a hugely influential pedagogue. We're talking a pianist, about a pianist who, however, ran the Curtis Institute and founded the Marlboro Music Festival, just as Gusevitsky founded the Tanglewood Festival. Marlboro is not Tanglewood. Serkin is somebody for whom must, one must have the highest possible regard. He's taking what he loves, which is Germanic culture, and with great enthusiasm and energy, applying it to his new homeland. You know, 
good for him, but not in every way good for us. Uh, we can't blame him for this. It's just, it just so happens that he was not an American. He was, he was a European who had to come here because he was Jewish and Hitler became um, the, the ruler of Germany and Austria. So, uh, Vladimir Horowitz, Yasha Heifetz, these are the, the most influential instrumentalists, and you can't blame them for being Russian. They, they are Russian. Um, they did a pretty good job, actually, trying to be American. I mean, Horowitz uh, played the Barber Sonata, and he uh, played the Stars and Stripes forever, and Heifetz wanted Gershwin to write a violin concerto for him, and he played concertos by Americans, and and he had enormous admiration for Gershwin. My fits in. So, uh, as far as the composers go, Stravinsky was highly influential. But he would have been actually if he'd never come here. People who studied in France with Boulanger, Stravinsky was their godhead. Did he move to Los Angeles? Really didn't matter because he didn't teach and he didn't interact with American culture that much. Uh, Schoenberg was a teacher. He did wield influence as a teacher. I already mentioned his admiration for Ives and Gershwin, who was a close personal friend of his. Um, so yeah, sure, this influx of powerful European composers and performers. I didn't even begin to mention all the conductors, but they're all European born. But you know, a, a lot of these people were very, very generous in their receptivity to American culture. Klemperer, Reiner, two other guys who really admired Gershwin. Um, so you can't really hang it on them, you know? What about, on, what about on the general like concert going public coming in from Europe. And I, I don't know, maybe you can shed some light on this. This is straight up a question I don't know the answer to. Was there uh, kind of a, a the audience wanted their own stuff type of thing? Or how, how open-minded were audiences at this point to hearing, uh, you know, like if I'm, if I'm coming from Hungary and I left Hungary, how open am I receptive uh, as a listener of classical music to Gershwin or Ives? Well, you have to start with the 19th century and the Germans. <clears throat> the German immigrants to the United States really found classical music in America. Mm -hmm. They're the founders of the orchestras. They're the founders of the singing societies, which was a big phenomenon before World War I. And they make music at home. And they are Germanic. So... Americans acquired an affinity more for German music than for Russian music or for French music or Italian music. Although those things are happening as well in these formative decades. If you're asking what becomes of this audience, which is mainly Germanic after World War I, I, I guess I take your point, which is... Uh, they continue to want to hear Beethoven and Brahms. I'm old enough to have seen 
the last manifestation of that audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York. Uh, I'm not old enough to have seen it at Town Hall, where you know people like Schnabel would regularly perform, or Bush. But I'm old enough that I remember in the 60s and 70s, 80s, when I worked at the 92nd Street Y, there was this wonderful audience. Many of them were immigrants, children of immigrants, basically Germanic, that loved German chamber music. And uh, yeah, they weren't particularly interested in Copeland. Um, and uh, that's entirely understandable. Uh, it, it was a it was a terrific ambience that no longer exists, where you know you were sitting among people. You can still experience that in New York with Russian audiences, by the way, only with Russian audiences. In my experience, you go to a concert by say Trifonov in a small hall and most of the audience is Russian and they all know the pieces and the ambience is just transformed. Or you go to see a, a, a Chekhov play in Russian in New York, uh, you may have the same ex audience in Los Angeles still, or you may not, but you, you experience a Russian audience with Russian music or a Russian play in New York, it's, it's the last gasp, you know, it's, alas, you, you won't find a German audience or an Italian audience, or let, let alone an American audience, a French audience. I don't think of, of this magnitude and intensity. The Russians are, are the, they come last. And of course that will dissipate as well. Yeah, I've experienced, I mean, I, I can tell you from my experience, as an immigrant, and a lot of authors in Latin America have talked about this, that once yeah. you once you leave, you want it more. Like, I don't think I was as Colombian as I, I am in L.A., yeah. even though culturally I've become so Americanized yeah. in many ways. And yeah. so I, I yearn for things that my children, if they're born here in America, will not yearn for in the same manner. The Germans in music are a perfect example of that. I mean, they were so... As I said, I'm old enough to have witnessed their hunger. It, it was a wonderful thing to partake in. It really was. It's gone now. But it was great. Uh, it created an ambience that no longer exists. Or go to a, you know, to go to a leader recital, even into the 80s, where everything is sung in German, it was such an intensely satisfying experience. Yeah, and I was reading... Uh... T.S. Eliot's uh, notes on the definition of culture. And he says like something interesting that as, as cultures evolve, things that are lost don't come, like you can't put them back into place. And I think that that's one of them, like audiences for things that are foreign, essentially, if something local isn't built around it, those audiences change. They might change to something different, better in some way, some, sometimes, but sometimes it's, it's just gone and it was a beautiful moment in time. And uh, dealing with that result is sometimes confusing for us. I'm writing a book now called The Erasure of the Arts. Mm. And the topic is the erasure of the arts from the American experience, which nobody talks about or even notices, but it's happening all around us. The arts are in 
or in crisis. It's a calamity. And, it's, uh, and the pandemic has just accelerated the calamity and what should be our awareness of it. Uh, I want to get into that topic, but I want to go back a second to the for, for a bit about the Dvorak thing. The other thing I found fascinating about the way you framed everything that I can relate to personally is that this idea that an outsider can actually be really tapped into uh, and discussing a struggle, which is something that, or a culture, which is something that right now is something that's met with resistance. So like you're, you're saying Dvorak was very, you know, prophetic, but also very good at, at seeing what the American music scene could look like, and he was an American. And do you think there's any like value in people like that that can see it from outside, and that we shouldn't avoid it? The classic example is Tocqueville. Mm. Everybody still looks to Tocqueville, this French aristocrat who blundered into the United States as a prophetic and shrewd observer because he came from France and could see things that we couldn't. Dvorak is our, our musical Tocqueville. He understood the power of the sorrow songs more completely than any American could because they took him completely unawares. He, he, he had no idea of this music before he arrived. I can't know whether such a thing is any longer possible because the world is, you know, globalized is a good question. I mean, the most obvious answer would be no, that we're, we're so exposed to other cultures. I, you know, an amazing example of this is Gamelan, the, the impact of Gamelan in 1889 in Paris on people like Debussy. There were no recordings of Gamelan. There were no films of Gamelan. So it was a, an epiphany just as Swing Low, Sweet Chariot was an epiphany for Dvorak. We can't, I don't know, maybe if you go to Antarctica today, you could have an epiphany. I don't know. Yeah, and I think I, I agree with you. It's, it's almost impossible in such a unified culture, especially with the internet, like you pointed out. I can go on YouTube and find things. The internet is a real problem. Yeah, I but, but I mean, the problem with it is we take for granted the discoveries we're making day to day. This thing that should have been the Library of Alexandria has turned into the most divisive thing on earth. I, I, you know, I said something very naughty once in an interview with a guy from the BBC. I was in Carnegie Hall in the archives there with Gino Francisconi, who's the wonderful archivist at Carnegie Hall. And Tom Service from the BBC is talking to the two of us and Gino's talking about his achievement. He's digitized the entire archive. And I said very uh, improperly, uh, I'm not sure it's a good thing. Uh, certainly there's a big part of me which feels it's a bad thing. It's too accessible, too readily accessible. And the whole experience of doing research and understanding the past changes fundamentally when you're dealing with a digitized archive. It's uh, sad but true. It's also changed our relationship to art in a way that is concerning to me, which is we are now constantly looking for ways for art to be easier to process. And I 
something about me revolts against this idea that like reading of war and peace is not an easy thing it whoever thinks it should be clearly hasn't read it but what do you get on the outset that's what the why that that novel survived um and in general i, I don't think that art should like intern the internet has changed our understanding of how easily it should be to digest not knowledge or something like that and the art is embedded with you know historic and cultural knowledge and it should not be so easy to decode that if we that we should rebel against anything that's difficult and i think that's what the internet has done which is dangerous I'm, for the art i'm sure you're right um, yeah but you know the the reason i go going going back the reason i i was asking you about how an outsider can contribute to you know an inside look uh it's something that's being discussed now as a bad thing you know that the uh, a person from america will never understand colombian culture and i've always disagreed with that maybe somebody who an american scholar who travels to colombia might get a much clearer picture of well we deal with cultural appropriation in the radio show i could refer you to the radio documentary where Kevin Days, who's a distinguished African-American bass baritone, comments on the issue of cultural appropriation and the propriety of Dvorak coming here and appropriating so-called Negro melodies. I mean, what Kevin says, as you may recall, is music is for everyone. And if you don't buy that, how am I going to sing uh, Brahms and Schubert? I mean, that's the danger that people don't realize that play this game is eventually that also puts whatever culture you belong to at risk of not having access to what has now become universal culture because it doesn't quote unquote belong to you. And that that is insane to me. I just don't get the game. I, I ran into a an example just yesterday, somebody criticizing Debussy for appropriating Gamelon. This is just, it's nuts to me. It's true. Okay. He didn't know much about Gamelon. He was not a scholar of Gamelon, but it's what artists do. If we ex experience something that moves us or excites us, we use it. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Yes, and also added to that is this idea that a creator, so like if you're a sculptor or a composer, once your creation is out in, in the world, uh, to some degree, you're part of the audience of the creation itself. Uh, I, I don't really believe that culture is something you can own. Uh, culture is something that's put out by whoever puts it out, or art, you know, philosophy, art, or the manners of a, of a people. It's something that goes out and we determine as culture, but it cannot really belong to you the way your house belongs to you with a deed. It's very hard for me to feel any sympathy for the policemen who patrol cultural appropriation. I can a little bit understand in the case of the Indianists movement, mm. which I take an interest in, why Arthur Farwell is more acceptable than, than Cadman. Cadman, maybe this is a, too much of a digression, Nicholas. But here you have people inspired by Dvorak using Native American lore and music as a starting point for composition. 
it's completely buried today because it's politically incorrect. But the guy who started the Indianist movement, Arthur Farwell, was a very considerable composer whose music we must know. I could call him America's forbidden composer. And uh, if you want, you can go to the Noxo CD, Dvorak in America, and play for people Pawnee Horses, which is only two minutes long, by Arthur Farwell, both in its piano version and in its choral version. And then, you know, we can ask the question, did he do something he should not have done? So that was Pawnee Horses. And uh, I consider it a very high compositional achievement. Uh, there was a composer named Charles Martin Leffler, who used to be really famous, uh, now forgotten, a Boston composer, who said that Pawnee Horses, in his opinion, was the highest compositional achievement in American music. And we're talking about a piece that was written in the first decade of the 20th century. So what is Farwell doing appropriating Indian music and lore, and did he have the right to do it? One could say he's a guy who spent a certain amount of time living with Indians, hunting with Indians, uh, listening to Indian music. You know, he paid his dues in, in a certain way. Although I'm not sure that that matters. Um, I, I begin to get a handle on this if I listen to the music of Cadman, which Cadman composes a song called From the Land of the Sky Blue Waters, which you could also play. And if you listen to that, you can ask yourself the same question.
So we hear this song today and we hear it as kitsch. We may enjoy it, we may not enjoy it, but it's kitsch. And what do we mean by that? Uh, maybe it's not so easy to say, but it's something that's instantly entertaining. And you could say it's opportunistic that he's taken this pedigree. I've written a song based on an Indian melody, which he did very casually. And if you were to tell me that this song was disrespectful, I wouldn't care, but I might agree. But if, when you talk about Farwell, you know, you can talk about him in the same breath as Stravinsky composing Lenos. Mm -hmm. Is that disrespectful? Stravinsky didn't live among Russian peasants, but he's appropriating their music. No, we don't consider it disrespectful because we recognize it as a very compelling artistic statement. Yeah, I, I also like the thing that worries me about that. Uh, people don't do their homework about the influence that somebody's work that's foreign to their own culture can have on the the local culture. I, I, I've referenced this again and again. I, I have to apologize. My dad worked in the literary business during the Latin American boom of, of authors. So that's something that's yeah. close to my heart. And I met a lot of them. And the thing that always catches me whenever I read their personal read, you know, especially Mario Vargas Llosa and Garcia Marquez wrote and Carlos Fuentes, they wrote a lot about their influences. And on the one hand, you have like Spanish El Quixote and then Borges. But on the other, the thing that they all reference is Proust. You know, so they're referencing a French uh, author as the most important thing as an influence to their own writing. And I, uh -huh. I, I, I think, well, what if you said Latin American authors have to figure it out on their own and Proust can't come into the the mix here because it's foreign to their culture <laughs> yeah, right and so they borrowed from these foreign cultures themselves to create their own very unique latin american voice and we there's more hope for uh, that integration or that unique thing if we are borrowing and stealing from everywhere we all can. culture is appropriative it's yeah. so obvious and yet it it needs for some odd reason, stating and restating. You can't have culture without appropriation. So Dvorak is a huge appropriator. He's appropriating in the New World Symphony, big time, the Song of Hiawatha by Henry Rogers Longfellow, which is also an act of appropriation. And that's discussed in the film and in the radio documentary. How are we supposed to feel about Longfellow? And so how does that leave us feeling about the New World Symphony, having appropriated Longfellow, who himself appropriated these bowdlerized versions of Indian legends that were set down by Mr. Schoolcraft? Well, you want to throw out the New World Symphony? I think it's an act of empathetic and inspired appropriation. And if it were not appropriative, it would not be as inspiring.
I loved what you talked about, like the difference between uh, an act of love, so to speak, in the arts. And I, I agree with you, like, I personally don't care, but there is a difference between this quiche. I love that word. Uh, like peace or something like that, like something that doesn't age well from somebody whose love of a culture propels him to, quote unquote, appropriate it. And that's a distinction that's not made these days, which is to me kind of insane. So yeah, you're willing to lose something like the New World Symphony for and gain nothing from it. That's like the the crazy part about it. You're not gaining anything from doing that. Yeah. So let's let's move on like uh, a little bit here. Um, I am curious. You you talked about demographics before World War One and the middle class education. Uh, and how that had affected people's understanding of the arts, especially towards a, you know, with a lean towards European composers. Did this intensify with the end of World War II and the even bigger growth of the middle class and wealth in that regard? The conventional wisdom at the time was that there was a culture boom. That's a term that applies to the 60s and 70s. and People had more disposable income. There were statistics about more books being purchased or more concerts being attended. And yet, an odd thing is that concurrent with the culture boom, cultural institutions were in crisis. They were running out of money. How did that happen? Well, there are a lot of reasons it happened, but one of the reasons is something we've already talked about, which is that the growth of culture in the United States, the arts, especially in classical music, in the interwar decades was shallow, and it did not root itself in the American experience. So this culture boom was in some ways a smokescreen. And when the dust settled, it turned out that there really was no culture boom because the roots remained shallow and we're paying for that now. So compare for me the shallow kind of American experience that we uh, end up seeing. Let me see if I'm getting at this the right place, but it, yeah. consider kind of that shallow 60s American boom of culture, the, like the result of that something like Andy Warhol versus digging deep into the roots of American culture, like what Dvorak was trying to do in the late 1800s? Or, or what do you mean by, like, what, what could have been the difference instead of, like, that shallow exploration of American culture versus that deep one? Well, in my world of classical music, the great hope was George Gershwin. Mm -hmm. Gershwin was the guy who was a mediator, an interloper, who could connect Tin Pan Alley, Hollywood, Broadway, Carnegie Hall, and the Metropolitan Opera, and he was a genius. Uh, people don't realize how much he was disdained in his lifetime. It's really shocking to read the things that were said about him by American-born classical musicians. Most fundamentally, that he wasn't a real composer. And when he died, Olin Downs' obituary in the New York Times predicted that no one would remember Porgy and Bass. So 
one of the reasons he was so reviled is that he was so powerful that he actually was building a bridge in this bifurcated and polarized, stratified cultural environment. And by the way, in Europe, musical culture was not as stratified. There was no jazz threat. There was no Gershwin threat. So Gershwin, he was born when Copeland was born. He could have lived until 1980 instead of dying in the 1930s after having composed one opera, no concertos, no string quartets, because he was going to, you know, he talked about, right, sorry, he composed a concerto, I take that back, but he, he was talking about writing a string quartet. He certainly would have written more operas or musical theater pieces of some description. So if you're asking me what could have happened instead in the 60s, so that we would have deeper roots. Gershon was a guy with roots. And they went back to the sorrow songs. They went back to the cotton fields. I mean, quite frankly, he had much deeper roots than Aaron Copeland. Uh, Ives had roots. Gershwin had roots. We needed to build on these guys. But they were marginalized. They were not even part of the narrative. The guys with the roots. Uh, why didn't we have an American Faulkner? in classical music. When Faulkner was the great American novelist, did we have a contemporaneous American composer of Faulkner's stature who was as rooted as Faulkner? There isn't even a candidate. Ives was in some ways like Faulkner, but that's from an earlier period. We didn't even come close to have a, having a rooted musical genius comparable to what Faulkner was for American literature. And indeed, American literature is more deeply rooted and, and more productive than American classical music. And instead, you know, you've mentioned Copeland a couple of times, but uh, the result is, I, I think, in my eyes, from everything you're describing, we cheapened the guy who we shouldn't have cheapened which is Gershwin. We make him seem, even now, we make him seem like a movie composer. And we glorified the one who actually is sort of a movie composer, which is Copeland. I have to agree with you. I do find Copeland's music that we best know him for to be slick. By the way, there's a Copeland film in the same series where this comparison to Ives and Gershwin is made very explicitly at the end that's going to become our next NPR radio documentary. Wonderful. Copeland. Yeah, these are very troubling stories. What does that do? Because I think, you know, I had, you're helping me put a lot of things together in my mind, but in, in what we've been, or what America has been favoring in their quote unquote high art, it now starts making perfect sense to me that uh, institutions, especially orchestral institutions, see their future in a lot of cases, not as elevating some sort of uh, American culture, but rather looking for the voices that perpetuate these cycles. I'm, I'm thinking here, and even though I have tremendous respect for him, like the the platforming of John Williams as like an innovative American composer, which he's not in in any respect uh and meanwhile continuing to ignore perhaps more deep composers that are out there 
do you think that that comes from that kind of notion of who America decided to keep elevating throughout the years, starting with Copeland? What I would mainly say is that our orchestras have failed to curate the past. Museums have succeeded. Mm. We've curated our American past individual arts and uh, utterly failed to curate our American past in music. Even Ives is not nearly played as much as he should be. But then I could just list composers for you, like George Chadwick or Arthur Farwell, Bernard Herman. Okay, here's a guy who's from your neck of the woods. I mean, he's from New York City, but he winds up in Los Angeles where he's not taken seriously by the composers back in the Northeast who are not on his level. Uh, Herman, to me, is the most underrated American composer of the 20th century. I'm not just talking about his film scores, but his clarinet quintet and his symphony, his cantata Moby Dick, uh, his radio plays. A post-classical ensemble has a new CD on Naxos with the radio play Whitman, scored by Bernard Herman in 1944. That's particularly pertinent today. It's about democracy and Whitman's vision of an inclusive democracy. But this is really mind boggling. It's not hard to sell tickets for a concert of music by Bernard Herrmann. So what's the problem? Why in the world are not American orchestras performing his symphony? Why doesn't somebody perform Moby Dick? You could get an audience for that. Uh, the clarinet quintet is my favorite American chamber work, the Herman clarinet quintet. Esapekka Salonen, when he was music director of the Los Angeles Philharmonic, moved to Los Angeles and looked around and asked himself what might be here for my orchestra. And he came up big with Bernard Herman and Silvestre Revueltas. He could not have gone he, he could not have done a better job uh, because here are two major composers that are not known, and in Herman's case, not known for his concert output. I didn't think Salonen did Moby Dick, and I don't think Salonen did the symphony, but he performed and recorded the movie scores, and he did an entire CD of Revueltas, who's one of the most impressive composers ever produced in North America. He happens to be Mexican, although he spent a lot of time in the U.S. It's just beyond, I wouldn't say it's beyond comprehending because I understand it all too well, but it's totally unacceptable that American orchestras do not perform the music of Revueltas. It simply should not be permitted, and yet, Here's a guy with a unique sonic signature. He's a New World original. He writes great for orchestra. And who's ever even heard of him? I'm not talking about, you know, a specialized taste or special pleading because he happens to be Mexican. For me, he's a greater composer than Copeland. And, and that's part of the problem. I think when they, when they do perform things like Revueltas, they throw him in in a concert specifically for that 
purpose. It's like you're saying, they turn it into a specialized thing when it shouldn't be. So, you know, Latin American voices, and they do one concert every 10 years, and you're missing the point of what you should be doing as a curator, which is just grabbing the best of everything. <laughs> These shouldn't be one-offs. I think a curator needs to do more than that. I think a curator needs to retrieve the past and tell a story. It doesn't have to be the best. Mm -hmm. We need to know that the symphonies of John Knowles Payne, we may not, and they're pretty good. They're not as good as Brahms and Schumann, but they're very, very skilled symphonies. And they're not, they're not cookie cutter symphonies mm -hmm. either. They're, they're, they don't sound American, but they don't lack their originality and creativity. Um, that music is part of our national heritage. And, and when you get to Chadwick, you're talking about music that's not only part of our national heritage, but music that's damned good. Uh, there's a piece by Chadwick called Jubilee that should be as known as the Stars and Stripes Forever. It's a fabulous piece. And it quotes Camp Town Races. But most conductors in this country have never even heard of it. Now, I, another thought that just came to me in the rejection of these like very unique and powerful voices in favor of, you know, like you called it, the, the shallower level. Do you think that that also helped propel the insular nature of the modernist American composers that came after? Like, do you think that that helped uh, keep them out? They didn't have any. Uh, Copeland felt this way. There are no shoulders. He said he was starved for a usable past and that there was none. But there was. It's just that we didn't have anybody looking for it. We didn't have professional music historians. Uh, Copeland and Thompson were our amateur music historians. They didn't really have time to, to look at the music of Chadwick. It wasn't recorded. It wasn't performed. Late in his life, Copeland's looked at some Chadwick scores and thought, wow, I had no idea. Um, and the big, the big, the big vacuum is Ives. I mean, uh, that Ives was not, again, when Copeland discovered Ives, he thought, Jesus Christ, here we are saying we don't have a past. We, we, we don't have anything to build on. We're trying to create an American symphony. And these, these pieces have been sitting there without anybody knowing or hearing them. Uh, if Ives, you know, here's a, a virtual history uh, uh, exercise. It seems that Mahler, when he was conducting the New York Philharmonic, stumbled on the score of Ives' Third Symphony and considered programming it. This is like a, it may be apocryphal, it may not be, but there's every reason that Mahler would have taken to Ives, because Ives is Malarian and Mahler is Ivesian. Suppose he had found the second symphony and performed it with the New York Philharmonic in 1910. This is not implausible, really. I mean, he just didn't know it was there, but you know, it's completely plausible that instead of performing McDowell, which he did, he performed Ives' Second Symphony, that would have been a game changer. And then when Copeland came along, Ives would have been a known, to some degree at least, a known quantity. So yes, the modernists 
they started from scratch. And in retrospect, they didn't have to, but they didn't know any better. They didn't look at Chadwick. They didn't know about Ives. Gottschalk is another composer you could mention in the same breath. He was now, there already. Oh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt. I, I had a, a question too about Ives since you're yeah. onto it. Yeah. I mean, I'm still shocked with, with Ives and maybe you've experienced this yourself, but I can tell you it's disheartening at, uh, you know, I, I, when I work with orchestras, like youth orchestras that I've worked with, he's still met with resistance from American-born trained musicians. Terrible here. jobs, a terrible job cultivating an interest in Ives. And this is, this is a, orchestras are to blame, conductors are to blame, um, chamber musicians are to blame. It's scandalous that in, in the 21st century, you know, when, 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 when Bernstein in 1951 belatedly gave the world premiere of Ives' Second Symphony, which we now believe was completed in 1909, hmm. it was noticed, and he recorded it. And I, that recording was noticed, and people thought, my God, look at the magnitude of this. But nothing happened. Orchestras didn't start performing it. Conductors didn't start conducting it. It, it remained outside the repertoire. It's unacceptable. Yeah, it is. And especially considering the amount of money that was being poured into American orchestras uh, starting in the 50s. Um, you know. Yes, that money was famously squandered. And it's one of the reasons that charitable foundations today will not support orchestras. So this is the other, this is the other topic I wanted to get into. They feel they were ripped off. Yeah. So let's talk about that. They were. Yeah. So you wrote, uh, I just want to reference it to anyone that wants to look for it, but you wrote an amazing thing in December, or you, you got posted in December, the, the one that's called Our Rebels Are Now Ended. Uh, and it deals He's with some American of this. Scholar. Yeah. It deals with some of this. So, you know, I, I want you to go in depth about that, like the history of, uh, or not in depth, but what was the most, uh, in doing that research, what was the thing that most struck you about uh, that paradigm of, of private versus public funding and why American orchestras sort of landed in this well, it's position. not new to me. Uh, when I was running the Brooklyn Philharmonic in the 1990s, the Knight Foundation announced the magic of music. This was going to be their initiative to support innovation in the symphonic community because it was widely understood that orchestras needed to innovate. Nobody knew what that meant. They just knew that something had to be done. And... Rockefeller, Ford, uh, Hearst, Mellon were all pouring money into orchestras in support of innovation. And this was a, a particular effort that I happened to witness and take part in from day one, because the Brooklyn Philharmonic, which is, I was the CEO, was one of the orchestras in the initial group funded by the Knight Foundation. And uh, they had a grant officer there, I forget her name, who was new to classical music. And uh, they put a lot of money on the table. To get into the circle, you had to be approved and you had to apply with a proposal. You know, here's what we're going to do to innovate. So we got in and we innovated because, you know, we, that's another story. But we were doing something that was not being done by other orchestras. 
including Ives. So the other orchestras, they got nowhere, really. I remember one of the orchestras that will remain nameless. Their innovation was to put a large screen uh, behind the orchestra and show a close-up of the oboist when he was playing. That was their innovation. And uh, a lot of this money was just absorbed for general operating because orchestras needed money to, to balance their budgets. And it was short-lived. I remember talking to this woman, I forget her name, who said she, she just couldn't believe what she had found. Uh, she said, I went to a, the annual conference of the League of American Orchestras, then called the American Symphony Orchestra League, and people seemed clueless. They had no idea what to do, or even that there was a crisis. They were, they were in another place, and uh, night terminated the program. Well, and so I understand them being at a loss, but the part that is inexcusable, and this is part of the paradigm that we keep repeating, uh, they still took the money, and they still come themselves nonprofits with a mission statement of all these things, and yet they pay such close attention to the bottom line instead of what their mission should be. And it's similar to what you're talking. I mean, if there used to be a grant for innovation and you don't innovate, how like it's almost like how dare you? You know, I don't think it was done cynically. No, no, of course. First of all, there was desperation. We've got to balance our budget, and secondly. There was real lack of leadership in a world. There wasn't anybody at, at these orchestras, whether it was the music director or the executive director or the chairman of the board or the artistic administrator, who really had a vision. Uh, and I'm afraid it's still the case, by and large, that orchestras now, even more than ever, they're frantically attempting to innovate. They, they, they know they've got to do something. So the, the, the solution uh, right now seems to be, let's play as much black music as we can. Let's, let's hire a black conductor or a black pianist. Find, find, a, find something composed by a black person. Uh, it hasn't really occurred to them because they don't have the resources to curate the phenomenon of black classical music. It, there's a story there. They, they're not prepared to tell it. And by the way, Dvorak, is integral to that story. Now, in, in that line of thought, because I, I see it too, like you said, everyone's uh, trying to innovate. And uh, personally, for it, it would be more important now than ever that your content is interesting because you know they're, they're, they're all trying to go online, for example. That's the big innovation they're trying to get, kind of like what the Berlin Phil did 12 years ago. But the thing that remains a question for me in that in dumping you know, a lot of money into this is, but what is the difference in your content? Like what makes me want to get a subscription to both the Berlin Phil online and the LA Phil online if you haven't done the work, like you're saying, of finding something unique that will make the two organizations different. And I think in that way, curating these type of concerts like you're talking about is a clear, at least one way to do it that they're not doing in Europe. You know, they're not finding this music in Vienna, and it's here. So that's one way to get out of this hole, as, as I see it. Orchestras have never had a strong relationship to the scholarly community. 
you look at museums and you'll immediately appreciate what I'm talking about. You couldn't have a major museum without scholars on staff. And they curate the past. Orchestras never have scholars on staff. They never curate the past. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the, the know-how. They don't have the knowledge. So what would it, do you think that that's also partially the failure of uh, educating scholars in music? Or is it more the failure of hiring scholars in music? Well, musical scholarship is also a problem uh, for the most part. Uh, classical music in America has not attracted the attention of scholars, even music historians. Either there are, today there's a great focus on the contemporary moment. In my field, if I could call it that, 19th century classical music in America, there's been very, very little work. Do you think there's a... I, I find this... I'll just tell you how I feel about it and you tell me. I, I found going through my undergrad and master's that um, when I compared my my field, like the field of music, to my friends doing PhDs in economics or PhDs in law, uh, there it was so easy to become, in the eyes of the school, a scholar in music. That the the knowledge that some of my friends with uh, supposedly music history degrees to my knowledge, is very ba is very similar, where I can't say the same for somebody who graduates from a, a basic economics degree and their counterpart in a PhD of, in economics. Uh, do you think that schools are sort of not, it, it, there's like two levels, like they, they don't have the same uh, power as other scholarly pursuits, like in linguistics or where something? Did, where did you get your... My undergrad, I got at McGill. So that's a very heavy research school. Yeah. Uh, and CalArts, which is a joke academically. So that's uh, <laughs> I'm talking more about my friends at McGill, where like if you saw my counterparts at McGill getting up their PhD in physics, it was completely different level of rigor and understanding of what they're what it meant to do research. Because uh, to be honest, people like you are sort of an outlier in in our field, like picking up a book like like what you do is not the norm. Yeah. The, well, the state of, of scholarship in in the world of classical music in america is a topic i probably shouldn't attempt to talk about <laughs> how can an ensemble then let's compare the differences between the relationship like you said with ensembles versus other curating areas like museums no. how does that relationship work in a museum in a much more productive way does it involve just research, in your opinion, or is it more just having somebody on staff that can guide you? My favorite example is, uh, which I trot out frequently, is an exhibit at the Metropolitan Museum a few years ago about Thomas Cole. Hmm. Thomas Cole was the teacher of Frederick Church. Frederick Church was, for a period of decades, the most popular and influential American painter. He's the founder of the Hudson River School. And it is Church, more than any other painter, who made landscape the iconic genre for American painters. We're talking about paintings he did in the 1850s and 1860s. His teacher was not in France. Uh, he decided not to go abroad to study. It was Thomas Cole 
who was European born, in the U.S., a lesser painter, but there would be no Frederick Church without Thomas Cole. And Cole's roots were in Europe and in landscape painting as practiced in France and in England. So the Met had an exhibit about the relationship of European landscape to Thomas Cole, and it followed this narrative to Frederick Church. It was co-curated by Tim Berenger, whom I know at Yale, who's a very accomplished French horn player and knows music, and he knows Dvorak, and he appreciates that Dvorak is the closest thing to a important Hudson River School American composer. So I found this a very illuminating exhibit. It was copiously annotated. And of course, the paintings were there, some of which had been brought over from abroad. And uh, what it immediately brought to mind is the lineage that goes from Payne to Chadwick to Ives. Um, Ives is our first really important symphonist. And the important symphonists who precede him, who are lesser figures, are Payne and Chadwick. Chadwick became a symphonist because of pain. Ives did not become a symphonist because of Chadwick, but still, if you're following the footprints, Chadwick's symphonies sound American, pains do not. Ives are American. That's a, a lineage. That'd be a wonderful topic for an orchestra, but they'd have to play the music of pain and play the music of Chadwick, which they don't even know. So that's the difference between an orchestra and a museum. By the way, the conductors who have most recorded the music of George Chadwick are foreign born. <laughs> One is from your neck of the woods, Jose Cerebrier, who's from Uruguay, and the other is Naomi Yarvi, who was from Estonia and who acquired a, a particular passion for Ives' Third Symphony. Uh, when Rostropovich was the music director of the National Symphony, I'm sorry, I meant Chadwick. Uh, and Naomi Yarvi, who acquired a particular right. passion for Chadwick's Third Symphony. Rostropovich, when he was music director of the National Symphony in D.C., performed Chadwick's Second Symphony. Uh, I don't notice American conductors performing Chadwick's Second Symphony. So this is an enormous uh, gap. The fact that our orchestras and our conductors don't know the music of Payne and don't know the music of Chadwick and seek, I would hope, to know the music of Ives. There's a story there that's, that's not being told and absorbed. Uh, no museum would make this mistake. In, in what you're saying, it seems to me that ideally, the conductor would fill the role of the main researcher for Never the happened. You need a, a scholar on staff. I see. Uh, Bernstein uh, was his own scholar, uh, for whatever you make of what he decided, he was absolutely uh, committed to uh, curating the past uh, and curating the symphony. That's how he came to Nielsen, because he wanted to find symphonies in the 20th century that he believed in. He found Sibelius, he found Shostakovich, then he found Nielsen, and you know, he made a statement. Uh, so 
He's not somebody who needed a scholar on staff, although ironically, he's probably the kind of conductor who might have welcomed a scholar on staff. Mm. But your average conductor has other fish to fry. So he's given, most conductors are given a mandate that they cannot possibly fulfill. They're busy learning scores. Well, and, you know, as anyone who's had any proximity to to scholars or scholarship, it's incredibly time consuming. It and it, it cannot take second uh, fiddle to to another it, element of your it's career. A different activity. Um, it's uh, it's a dysfunction in in the, the American orchestra template. Do you see the same dysfunction? I'm not uh, suggesting that Europeans have scholars at, at hand, but do you see the same well, the European The notion of a dramaturg is far more established in Europe than the United States. All opera companies have dramaturgs. Mm-hmm. In Europe, theater companies have dramaturgs. And, you know, the opera house is still more important than the concert hall there. So they have something we don't. So in that, in that, to bring bring all of these things, I think they can come together in this question: is uh, what is the risk of continuing to promote this paradigm, which is not working, as opposed to well, we already we've discussed. The risk is: uh, let's see what happens once the pandemic is over to our orchestras and opera companies. What's going to happen to the Metropolitan Opera? What's going to happen to the New York Philharmonic? We do not know. And there's your risk. These are institutions that have not been able to adapt. And um, their fate is unknown. Do you think their lack of uh, evolution, so to speak, their lack of of finding it? Yeah, it's a lack of evolution. Do you think that that in some way uh, makes it a harder case to make that these are institutions that because I see this case made all the time, is why can't we have a model like the Europeans where it's funded by the state? Do you think that this lack of, you know, accountability to their own culture makes it nearly impossible to justify? Uh, That's certainly a problem. There's an enormous bias in this country against government support of the arts, even though there's a history. The WPA is part of that history. The Cold War is a big part of that history. Um, But it seems that conventional wisdom right now is that politically uh, it's not going to be possible to fund the arts as they were funded during the New Deal or as they were funded abroad by the United States government during the Cold War. That's, that's a problem because the arts need money. And uh, it's going to come from the government or it's not going to materialize. And yes, the fact that our orchestras have not really embedded themselves in the American experience is an obstacle to making a case for government funding, just as it became an obstacle to making a case for funding by charitable foundations. They've dug a hole for themselves. I worry that the hole is getting deeper every year. Yes, it's always getting deeper. (laughs) The the other part of it is that uh, it's hard to understand. You know, I have a lot of friends that work in Europe and in European orchestras. Um, they feel some safety in their job, but also I think that the 
the requirements to run an, uh, an organization, except for maybe the very large ones like the Vienna State Opera. Uh, financially, they don't throw money out the window because they know that their funding is capped by the state. Oh. Uh, and, and that, I think, is something that if if America ever had a public funding mm -hmm. for their orchestras, there would have to be a shift in the way we expect to get paid or, you know, Well, the first thing that occurs to me is that if that happened, there would be a mandate to look at the native product. Something more would need to be done by orchestras with American music. Unfortunately, there's a way to satisfy that in a very sloppy and, and haphazard way. Just find American music and perform it. And that's not curating the American past. It, they're very far from having the capacity to do this. It, it would require a different template, a different mission. Although it's sitting right there at the, in the museums next door. Just look at the difference. And that the irony is that what has become, quote unquote, fiscally responsible for the managers of these orchestras is exactly what is going to keep them from innovating, which really isn't innovation. It's just changing the way you do things in the way that you're talking about. I, I think they'll resist this till the very end. I don't think they have their eyes open at all. Uh, they need to become humanities institutions, which is what museums are. Oh, the Los Angeles Philharmonic now has a humanities component. What do you make of that? I think, so first of all, the LA Phil has been, to me, a surprise every turn. I used to say this to my friends, every time I want to criticize them, they'd shut my mouth. So, you know, I, at one point I was like, I can't believe they won't program uh, things like the Barrio Symphonia, that thing is 50 years old. And then the week later it was programmed and they did it great. And uh, I think their social component with uh, teaching, which is one way of being a, uh, a community thing, is like saying, well, we're not going to change our programming that much, but we're going to have a huge element of education. Yeah. It's brilliant in some ways. And also it's what's keeping them afloat right now, ironically, uh, during the pandemic, I mean. Like the orchestra is not working, but money's still coming in because there's an obvious benefit to the community in their YOLA programs. What about the humanities part that they've added? Have you met the humanities director that they hired? I have not. Do you know anything about what they're going to do? I'm not sure what you mean by that, uh, by the humanities. Well, they, but Haven't they hired a humanities specialist? I was not aware. They have. Well, there we go. Do you know anything about it? Maybe you can tell no, me. I only know that it's happened. I'll look into it. Because uh, that also runs a complicated risk in the current political climate, which is you hire a diversity and inclusion officer or something like that. No, I'm and not talking about that. But yes, it could fall into that. Hole. That's what I'm talking about. I really hope it doesn't fall into that thing. Uh, it might, but it yeah. might not. So, you know, but I do think the L.A. Phil of all the orchestras in America is the one that's doing, uh, forgive the expression, but throwing the most crap at the wall and, and seeing what sticks. And some stuff is sticking. Uh, and, South Dakota Symphony. Yeah? yeah. In what ways? Uh, why do you bring the most? Most classical ensemble. Oh, well, you. Of course, I didn't know that the, it was the South Dakota Symphony. I just know you as the post-classical well, ensemble. South Dakota Symphony, um, I'm not. 
they're, they're separate from the first ah, ensemble. Although we did bring the Lakota Music Project of the South mm -hmm. Dakota Symphony to DC, and their music director, David Geyer, is a close friend of mine. But um, Geyer's signature initiative is the Lakota Music Project, which brings the orchestra to Indian reservations. So they're there. That's fantastic to hear. I mean, and his programming is is very adventurous. He does a lot of new music, a lot of American music. It's an excellent orchestra musically. Um, it's in the community. Um, it's a model. Yeah, well, let's hope people like the bigger organizations that still currently have their budgets, which I'm I'm sure they're going to start declining if they don't do something. Let's hope they pay attention to those. Models. They won't. I don't think they will. You know, we we're putting a stream. You know, we're streamlining now this career of uh, music administrator. But like you said, the disconnection between some of these people and what they're working towards is so in insane that I can't even believe it. I don't know what you're referring to, and I'm I'm almost scared to find out. <laughs> so what I mean is, like, a lot of schools are opening programs in music administration. Now okay. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. But they, those people don't even know music or want it. <laughs> Not good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, is there anything else you would like to to talk about? I mean, I, I think this might be a good as place as any, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure we'll do this again later. Well, interpolate what you can from the Dvorak film and the Dvorak radio show. I think there's a fair amount you can slip in and be sure people know where to go on the web. Absolutely. Postclassical.com. It's actually not that easy to find the radio show. Um, it's easiest to find by my blog, Nicholas. You could refer people to artsjournal.com. It's an easy way to access the radio. It's actually the easiest way to... Our website, unfortunately, does not make it obvious where to find the radio show. But the blog, um, the blog does. So, and do you know the music of Revueltas? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we it got played a fair amount thanks to the Venezuelan uh, El Sistema at the time. Obviously, that's collapsed. I don't think so. I don't think Dudamel would, would do Noche de los Mayas and Sensa Maya, but I don't think he did anything else. And Noche de los Mayas is not even composed by Revueltas. I mean, do you know the homenaje a García Lorca? Yes. So that that's... The... That's a fantastic piece with, you know, and, and Reyes has fantastic uh, trumpet parts. Do you know the film Reyes? No. Let me find So there's that. a post-classical ensemble DVD with the soundtrack newly recorded. That's just maybe his highest achievement, the score for Reyes. I'm going to look that, that up. That's recorded with Chris Gecker as principal trumpet. And it's, it's, it's a huge showcase, really, for the first trumpet. That, um, that's fantastic. I love his music. I mean, the, what I know of it. An incredible composer. I think you're right. So the paperwork that you could play would be like um, Ocho por Radio, um, Planos, Homenaje. <laughs> uh, I'm going to look that up. Those are pieces with trumpet. Yeah. Small instrumental groups. Yeah, which is where we're always looking for that. Thank you so much for doing this. And I hope I'll be able to do this again with you when when your next book is out. And maybe we'll Oh, yeah, talk please about do. It'll be in October. You can. Uh, it's uh, it's with Nor W W Norton in October. Perfect. I'll yeah. check it out and then maybe we can do this again because you know okay. you're fascinating. Good luck, Nicholas. Thank you so much, Joseph. Nice, to nice meet meeting you. you.
，拜拜。